Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. CEO of Mar, Bill Anderson, has worked in addiction treatment for 23 years, with 15 of those years at Mar. Over the course of his career, he has seen the treatment field from nearly every angle. Through enforcing house rules as a residential manager, helping clients process emotions as a primary counselor, working with families in admissions, sharing the clinical work with other professionals in business development, and overseeing the whole process as CEO, Bill has learned what is required to give clients and their families the best opportunity to experience recovery. He shares his recommendations of what he thinks families should look for when finding a treatment center for their loved one. What fires you up about getting people from active addiction into recovery? Um, oh, I love the work we do. I love um, when we're able to get that individual hooked into something that's different, gives them that hope, um, gives that hope to that family. There's just something um, amazing about seeing someone who comes from a place that is lost of everything. No hope, no direction, um, beaten down, um, and to see that light come on, to see that openness for change, to see that um, availability uh, to be vulnerable and intimate with other people and to see the hope you give to that family who, whether or not their loved one gets better or not, they have a hope for the future that even though they may not be okay, their loved one, uh, they themselves can be okay and be happy and content. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything better in life to see something like that in another person. Um, it's an incredible thing to be a part of, and that's what gets me going. That's the drive every day. You know, I've done a lot of different things, but but at the end of the day, the thing that gets me up early, gets me up, come to work, um, and gets me energized is that, that I want to instill that hope in another person somewhere down the road uh, and to see that light come on. That's That's what does it for me. And that's something that I've really seen with the families here, that what you just referred to, that ability, when that realization happens, that even if my loved one continues using, and hopefully they won't, hopefully they'll get into recovery and stay in recovery, but even if, you know, I can be okay and I can heal um, and I cannot be, I can stop being part of the problem, start being pointing towards recovery. That's a huge shift. And when you see that in family members, when they get that, and we, we've had some come and do the podcast. It's incredibly powerful. Moves recovery from just being about substance to something much bigger. It is. And, and, and the um, wonderful miracle part is that, that families can get into their own recovery or their own healing, their own journey, whether it's a spiritual or whether it's a life-changing event for them, regardless of their loved ones. Now, most of the times that um, endears their loved ones to continue their, their recovery journey too. But it doesn't have to be exclusive. Like you don't have to have both. It could have either one. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's part of that miracle that we have. And to see that come on for the families, like you had mentioned, is, is incredible in of itself. And you hear those stories of, of people who say, well, my loved one didn't do this or they struggled through it, but, but I came out better on the other side. I survived. I have hope for the future. I'm okay. Um, you know, I think that's part of what we do and, 
and and why I love to be part of this wonderful organization. I mean, that's that's what our staff are committed to. They don't give up. They don't give up on the families. They don't give up on the the patients we serve. Um, and they are always hopeful that around that corner, that family, that um, patient that needs recovery is going to get it. And they don't give up. Um, and they can help instill that little bit of hope. Mm-hmm. So in, in hearing you talk about this, was there a moment where that, in your in your career, where that kind of clicked for you and this kind of felt like a calling, like maybe you weren't sure what, what direction you wanted to go with counseling, but then working with people in, in substance abuse or with their families, um, where that, where that kind of clicked and, and shifted for you? There was. When I had first started my career, um, my vision was to be um, working with teenagers. Um, I got my undergrad, I went on to get my master's, and um, I was doing some consulting work at MAR. So that was my idea. I'll just do some consulting work at MAR. My passion is with teenagers. I'm going to get into the school system. I'm going to help change some teenagers' lives. Um, and it was through that process, and I tried, I tried the school system. It just wasn't for me. I mean, the challenges there, um, making changes in the parents' lives, and it just, it wasn't a click. Um, but through that experience at Mar, um, and coming back, I think it was probably my first, first couple years being a residential manager, there was this. Um, I don't know if it was a light bulb. I found that I got it. So I tell people, and I'm very clear on this, and some people either like it or some people don't, and, but it's who I am. I'm not in recovery. But it was somewhere in that first two years, I just got it. I just knew what they were talking about. I mean, I just kind of understood the struggles, not personally, but I knew what they were going through, and I and I connected with them, and I could, I could feel that lost hope. Um, and that was probably the moment. It was in that first two years of being a residential manager. I really didn't envision myself doing anything else. I thought substance abuse, addiction, recovery, working with that adult who has lost all hope, and 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 fighting with them alongside them caring for them and loving with them. I, I thought that was it. I was, I was hooked. I was hooked. So, and, and how long have you been in this field now? 23 years plus somewhere around there. So, and, and so you've got quite, quite a bit of experience. You've seen a lot of different treatment models and setups and what would you be, if you had a loved one who was in active addiction, what would you be looking for? in a program? Um, you know, I ask myself, my kids are, are in college and, you know, as any parent, you think about um, um, your children, if they struggled, what if, what if, mm -hmm. and you have those things. Those are normal thoughts, I think, for any parent as they work on those things. Um, I would want a place that cares. That, that's probably the first and foremost thing. You know, we do a lot of things at MAR and a lot of other programs. I've been affiliated with other programs that do wonderful clinical care. MAR does wonderful clinical care. Um, but the thing I would look for is someone who cares about my loved one, my son or my daughter, or if it was my brother or sister, someone who cares for them, meaning they want what's best for them. 
Um, and the way they get there may not be in the way I envision it or someone else, but, but the thing that's the underlying theme is they care deeply for their, their growth and their recovery, their um, great life um, caring. And, and that's what we have. I mean, I was in a meeting earlier this week or last week, and in that meeting, I think we had a hundred years of experience just at Mar in that one meeting. Hundred wow. years of experience in one meeting. It was it was really awesome. So you're talking about people who have experience here at Mar, and the only reason they stay here is because they care. But that, there's no other way that that group of individuals would stay at a place for that long if they didn't care. They weren't committed to helping other people and staying with this organization. I, that would probably be the number one thing. Um, and I think, and I think the second thing would be the ability to instill hope. If you can't do that, again, if you get surface level or even deeper and you get into some clinical care and you're going methodically through this program, and mm-hmm. but there's no commitment to instilling hope for that person, you can be as educated as you want. Yeah. You know, this is a disease that doesn't discriminate, you know, but you can be smart. But if you don't get that hope that there's something better for me, I think you're going to struggle, and I think we do that. And I think those would be the two things I would look for, caring and ability to instill hope in someone. That's well put. And because without that, then um, it's just words. You know, it's just a lot of a lot of words, a lot of good intentions maybe, but without if there's not that hope being transferred and that care that's going to protect that hope and nurture the person through this really difficult time and the family. Absolutely. It's the foundation. You have to have a foundation. If if it comes from there, you can build on that. Again, Mm -hmm. that's where you add all the programming. Right. You add the DBT, the trauma care, you Mm -hmm. add all those things. Um, But if you don't have that, where is it coming from? It's not coming from your heart. And people know that. Mm -hmm. People can feel it. People can feel if you're going to speak from your head or if you're going to speak from your heart. And that's what I would look for when, when I look for people who are committed to our journey, whether it's an employee or where I'm looking for people in my life. I want people who can speak to me from their heart and be all in. Um, and that's what we get here. You get people who are so passionate and they're all in. They're all into this thing. Um, um, and I like that. I like that foundation. If you have that, we can go from there. Right, right. That's And when you were talking about it, it reminded me of my first um, interaction here with coming in to meet Doug Brush um, for an interview to be an RA. Um, And I had worked in this communications field, you know, other places, and I wanted to look at being an RA just to kind of find out more about counseling. And and I just felt it. Like when I walked into his office and sat there with him, I just felt like this guy really cares, you know. And I could see it in the interactions with other staff members and just like what was – I could just feel it kind of in, in the men's center when I walked in. And I, there was like there's something special about about this place. Like, And I felt it right away. And I knew that I was going to try and do what I could to, to work here, even if I had to work somewhere else or to – support it, you know. Um, and so anyways, I, I can really, I, I, there's a lot of people and Doug's not the only one. There's a lot of people here that really carry that. And it's kind of a community. Yep. Uh, and ironically enough, I, I interviewed, um, with all three. So I got the opportunity to interview, interview with Doug Brush and, and again, what an incredible man. Um, but I also was blessed to interview with both Gary Dyes 
Um, he was my first um, kind of supervisor mm-hmm. here, so I got that opportunity. And then I also got an opportunity, a lot of people don't know Donnie Brown, but I got an interview to, a chance to interview with Donnie Brown when I first started working here. Um, and all three men are, are incredible. Um, but, but back to your point about Doug, there is something that he embodies. And I think part of it is that, that care and that hope and that warmth. But the other piece is that, that humility. Doug, for me, embodies that spiritual concept of humility. I mean, that man is willing to do whatever it takes to help the people that are here. And it, and it doesn't have to just be the patient in his care. It could be the family that's in our care. It could be an alumni. Doug not only knows everybody, not only remembers everybody's name, but he has the ability to stay connected in relationships long after they've left. They continue to be a part of Mar. Um, and he, um, it's just incredible what he does. And it's a, it's a joy to come and work with him every day. And um, we had a great interview. I think he inter- interviewed me at Sonny's Restaurant is where he interviewed me. But it was wow. um, um, one of the reasons I'm glad glad that I'm here. Yeah. And that, that actually, you reminded me of before I even came here, I went onto the website and I, there was a video of Doug talking about humility. And I played that and he was just talking about humility. And I was like, this is, you, this is available at a place to go work, you know, like, like this guy could potentially be my boss. You know, that was, that was a huge moment for me, which I, anyways, um, yeah. So, and, and you know, the Mars been around since 1975. You said you've been in the field for 24 years? Close. 20, okay. Mm-hmm. So true or false, do you think are, are the issues we're facing now in terms of addiction, is it affecting more people? Is it more of a problem now than it was at the beginning of your career? I think we have seen many changes. So mm-hmm. All mental health issues change and evolve. Um, the addiction arena has, in my estimation, I don't know if I'm going to put a caveat of worse or better, mm-hmm. it has gotten more complex. Mm. So we have seen it probably stagger from 18 million all the way up. I think the current estimates are 23, 24 million with addiction, substance abuse issues. But it's hard just to single that group out because you you expand to 45 maybe moving on to 50, somewhere around there, of mental health issues. And you can't exclude the part that either substance abuse or addiction plays in that whole 45 million. You you just can't discount it. So it's getting more complex. Um, I don't know about harder. I don't know about worse or bad. um, But it is getting difficult and challenging, and the landscape is challenging. So not only the complexity of the issues and dynamics and diagnosis, but also the treatment landscape. And the treatment landscape has gotten, gotten so much more complex for the family. It is really hard for fa- I'm, My heart breaks for families who have to struggle through this and don't know where to turn to. There's so many programs out there saying they do this, they do this. I, I can't imagine how hard that is. I mean, it just truly breaks my heart to have to navigate that landscape. So not only is their loved one facing a complex disorder that's multifaceted and it could have started in any way, but then the landscape to get help doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It gets it more complicated. And um, I think those are the struggles 
as we've evolved through this that that um that I battle with and that our team battles with and that Mar battles with and you know we do have that longevity we're in this fight you know for the long haul and we're not going to give up um, but those are the challenges and the, and the issues that we're facing and yeah and so kind of going off that with the landscape being what it is and the issues the complexity of the issues being what they are what do you think is the biggest challenge that treatment needs to address now that is kind of unique to our to our time the current challenges that any facility faces now the number one is the financial resources mm-hmm. to to that it takes what um to, to get the treatment so so treatment hasn't gotten less expensive treatment has gotten more expensive um the other things that have influenced that financial piece are of course um accreditation not just which are needed you know, these are needed oversights by both state and um, larger governing bodies, um, and they're needed. You know, you got Joint Commission, you got CARF, you got state agencies that oversee, and and again, very important roles. But the the amount of oversight and um, um, kind of um, input that they have into any organization can make it very um, difficult. Um, financially, because you need financial resources to do all those things that they want you to do for that oversight. So you put that in con- conjunction with the clinical care and the clinical care and the evidence-based stuff that we do that other programs do, you know, cost resources, it costs financial means. So I think that's the number one impact right now. Um, so you add all that financial stuff, and then you you look at people jumping into the industry that that are um, that want to help, um, but but again, they may not be thinking long term. And again, I'm not trying to put a number of days on it, but long term can mean a variety of different things. I mean, one of the things that we do really really well is we got a great alumni program and aftercare program. That's long term care. We have an extended care program. That's long term care. Um, we do alumni events where people who've got two years, three years of recovery are coming back to alumni events. That's long-term care. You know, we're with you for life. We are. Um, so when I talk about long-term care, I'm not trying to put a number of days on it. It's not a finite number. It's just that we need to be with people for as long as we can because that's where you get the true recovery. And I think that's part of the things are missing. So those are the difficulties. I think those are the probably the top two is that financial resources are there. And that commitment to being someone, and there, there's some organizations out there. In addition to Mar, we're not the only one that that think about being with you longer term. Um, and I think that's the way we want to stay somewhere in that long term with you for life. That's what I think is really going to impact um, the needs that are out there, and finding those way to meet those financial challenges, the resources available. And we do that. We work very hard at that. At the beginning of that, you mentioned how your heart goes out to the families and just, um, you know, when I used to be in admissions, just sensing the just sense of overwhelm and just totally relating to these people. These people are so overwhelmed by, you know, how am I going to pay for this? There's so many different options. What does all this mean? How does, you know, what what is the kind of, if you could communicate something to those families that are kind of in in that crisis mode right now and trying to sort through all this and figure out what's best for their loved one and best for their family what would you want to communicate to them um i was um i was blessed 
um, and had an opportunity through Mar to um, have a variety of different roles. You know, I came in as residential manager. I was a primary counselor. I was director of admissions. I was business development. I, I'm grateful um, and so thankful that I've had an opportunity to, to come back as the CEO um, and and do the things that I love. But one of my favorite positions was admissions. And I think admissions is probably um, where everything's at because you're getting those raw families, the raw person um, who needs that help, and you're trying to connect with them in such a way and help them navigate that complex landscape. And that's your goal when you have that family member who's there. And so my, my thing would be, and what I used to do is, is I would just try to get them to slow down and pause. And, and they would be, I don't know what to do. My loved one needs help and blah, 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 blah. And they're going speed. And my first reaction was, I, I can help you. Why don't you tell me what's going on? And so I would just slow them down. And when they had that opportunity to slow down and kind of start to tell you the exact issues that are going on, and they had someone on the other side who listened and cared, I think that helps them kind of know, okay, there's some, there's a place out there that may be a little bit different that's not just trying to get our loved one in and just fill a bed, which is not what we're trying to do. What we want to do is slow them down and say, I think we can help you, but guess what? If not, I'm going to talk to you anyway. And if I can get you to a place that can help you, maybe we're not it. You know, we do great stuff here at Mar. I mean, wonderful things. But if we're not the place to help you, we will get you to that place. We will help you navigate that complex system. We will tell you about things that can help you and what you can do, whatever it may need, whether it's an intervention, whether it's a different program because of financial issues, whether it's a, a different program because of mental health complex issues. We're going to help you navigate and we're going to slow you down. We'll take you by the hand. You know, we'll, we'll walk with you through this process. And I think that was probably one of my favorite things in admissions. And we have a great team that does that now. Um, I love the way they play off of each other, meaning sometimes one will work with a family, one will work with a patient. They communicate who's best for doing that. And again, the end result may not be us. I mean, we hope it is because we do great work. But but we know the end result is you're going to get the help you need, and that's where we want to be. You were at Mar 15 years earlier in your career, and so Correct. can you can you give us the uh, the list of all the roles you had? Yeah, when I came in, you know, I started as like I said, I just did that um, consultant work. I was just doing a group on um, Wednesday night. I did two groups on Wednesday nights and um, followed Gary Dyes. And um, again, what an incredible man taught me so much in the industry. And so I started there. But when I got hired on by Doug, it was as a residential uh, manager. Um, and that was the ability to care enough about the guys to tell them no. Mm. You know, to care enough to listen to them and say, hey, I want to do this. And I would say, I think down the road, that's a great idea. But right now, I think the focus needs to be this. So I think I'm going to say no to that. And, and having the ability to kind of sit there, and, and I was not well thought of. Was that was that hard for you? Because I've talked to other guys, and that's that can be kind of a difficult transition to get into. It is, and for me, it probably wasn't. It, yeah. it came natural. Not uh -huh. 
Not because I like saying no. In fact, I didn't like saying no. Yeah. I wanted to say yes because a lot of times, uh, you know, they they had some really good thoughts. I mean, yeah. these are smart individuals that come through us. You know, again, I, I said earlier, this is a disease that doesn't discriminate. It doesn't. It doesn't know race. It doesn't know um, financial. It doesn't know anything about the person. It's a disease that doesn't discriminate. So we had highly intelligent people yeah, coming right. through, and they're they're very smart. Um, so I didn't. You know, they had a lot of good ideas, but I didn't mind saying no because I knew why. I knew why I was saying no. They didn't. Um, and I have so many great stories. There was a guy, and he was like, I think I'm going to leave treatment early. Um, and he was here like 60 days, something like that. And I said, this is not a good idea. And he goes, I oh, know. I think I got everything. I'm going to go back home. I've got my great aftercare plan. And he would tell me what it is. And I said, I, I hear you. Like, I read this, and it all looks reasonable. And I want to believe you're going to do this. But I know an experience, and I know about intentions, and I know human behavior, and you you want to do these things, but right now, you're barely able to do what we're asking you to do here, so to think you can go home and do these things which are harder, I know that's not going to happen. And he goes, well, I'm going to go anyway. And I said, okay, that's your choice, um, but I really don't think it's going to be successful. I really don't. And I think he made it all the way to the airport before kind of going... All right, I think I think I think I should probably listen to Bill. And he came back, and he oh, and wow. he's still clean and sober today. Wow! Uh, I was very fearful if he had left, whether he was going to make it. I thought he didn't have another treatment episode. Um, so I knew when I said no, it was for the right reasons, and they wouldn't get it in that moment, and I was okay with that. Um, but I did it out of care, and I did it, I think, in such a way that. Um, was caring and loving. You know, I wasn't mean about it. I wasn't like, I didn't, I didn't minimize what they were thinking. Mm-hmm. I would agree with their thinking, but I would, you know, go back to, hey, let's slow down. Yeah. You know, so I love that part. Um, then I went to um, primary counselor um, and learned a whole lot from Dave Devitt, who's still with us. He's a, a, um, a very caring man. Um, and we didn't always see eye to eye. But he taught me as a primary counsel probably more than anybody else. And um, one of the things about Dave that a lot of people don't know is Dave Dave loves the guys with all his heart. And he comes off very firm and very strong. And he's, I think, probably one of the smartest men I've ever met. Um, And that's the thing he probably hides the most is that he's got a deep love for the guys he treats. So I was able to work with him as a primary counselor. I mean, it was at that time that there was an opening in the admissions department. Um, and they asked me, I said, hey, would you want to come over here? And I said, yes. Um, so I was the director of admissions for, I want to say, four years hmm. here at MAR, four years, 2008 to 2012. Um, and then we had an opening in business development. Um, and, and Gary came to me and said, hey, Bill, would you <laughs> would you like to do business development? I said, sure, you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll do it. Um, and I did that for a couple of years and we built a great team and um, it was so much fun. We were doing great, wonderful things. We were really collaborating. The care here has always been exceptional. So it was easy for us to go out there and tell people the wonderful things we did at MAR. And we did it as a team, and it was easy because we were getting great care. And um, So I've enjoyed all of those experiences. And, and what a blessing to be able to come back to an organization that I fell in love with, that deeply cares, and to come back and work with these people after after being away, after another journey. It's that's an incredible feeling. 
That's great. And I, I like how you talked about, you learned in, so in the residential manager position, you learned how to say no. If you could kind of, if we go through each of those positions and if you could kind of summarize, you know, what you learned about, about this organization or just about treatment in those, so what would you say you learned? So if you learned how to say no, um, that could be a loving thing and being a residential manager, what'd you learn as a primary counselor? If you could summarize. Oh my goodness. Um, that was another kind of huge, you know, every, every opportunity job that I've had, what I've tried to do is just look at it is, okay, there's so much I've got to learn. I've got to absorb everything mm-hmm. about it. And I got to switch hats from primary, I mean, from um, residential manager to a primary counselor. I got to switch hats. So I got to be that guy for their first 30 plus days, 30 to 45 days, somewhere around there, and sit with them um, and learning how to listen to all their clinical issues outline a treatment plan. So here's the, here's the plan that we're going to use to treat all these issues, outline it for them, have them fight with you about it. I'm not the guy that, that has to say no. That's another person now. I get the person, I get to, to be with the person, they come back and they go, hey, my residential manager told me I can't do this. And I get to be the person that goes, well, let's talk about that. Why do you think that happened? What is it in your experience that they said that or what what didn't you deliver to them? And I get to work with them on that one-to-one personal basis on taking that raw emotion that they have, whether it's anger, upset, hurt, fear, and I get to work with them on how do we resolve that. So I went from that one setting boundaries and loving them enough to say no to that person who could sit with them and process those emotions and be with them through that journey and hear their stories and connect the current raw emotion to where that was in their life. Mm -hmm. And to see those aha moments of, oh, that's where some of that pain comes from. That was a traumatic event for me. Well, that's what you're describing. Wow, I didn't piece that together. So I got from, from that to a place where I could sit with them. You know, over here it was say no to slow mm-hmm. them down. You know, I'm like that wall. In the primary, I get to sit with them and say slow down and then talk with them through that stuff. And that was, an, that was awesome. Um, and I learned that. You know, I learned that real raw emotion. And I got to learn guys um, and females. I used to do groups at the, at the Women's Center, how human they are. You know, sometimes we think of this disease and we dehumanize it and we say, oh, it's this disease. I mean, even like cancer, you talk about cancer in a general way and you can kind of put it over here in a box. Well, it's cancer. Mm -hmm. But there's a human face to that. There's a human face to the disease of addiction. There's a human face to mental health. And deep down, they're a human being that wants to be loved and cared for. That's where that comes from, from everybody. Mm -hmm. And I got to see that and learn that in that moment. It was awesome. Um, Director of admissions, oh, like I talked, I, I probably learned learned a lot about the family in those first two phases, but that was I learned more about the struggles for the family on the admissions side. And again, that's probably the role I probably enjoyed the most because that was, again, um, learning how difficult it was for those families, walking with them through that journey. Um, I learned more about... Um, the family dynamics in that care. And that's where I got involved in doing a lot of family work too with Todd Valentine, who still does that today as far as family dynamics group. And I got involved in that. 
So I learned a lot through that. And then on the business development, just that front face. You know, there were so many people out there that didn't know Mar even existed. There were a lot of people that didn't know how deeply Mar cared. There's a lot of people who still don't know um, how much experience in addictions, substance abuse treatment we have. They still don't know it. And so on that business development side, I got to be that first connection to Mar and to let them know that that we're passionate about this and we want to partner with you and we want to help the loved ones that you want to help. Um, and learning how do you translate all those experiences that I've had into conveying that positive message for therapists, doctors, um, other people in the field who are like, hey, where, where can we go to get good help and to, to deliver that message? So I, I learned how to do that in a way that was very authentic. One of the things that I look for in, in people that I work with is that authenticity. So I want to be authentic. I want to be real and truthful. Um, and I do that in all my endeavors. Mm. And and I, you, uh, in the uh, letter that you wrote that we put on our website and um, we'll, we'll be in the magazine that's going out, um, the title of it's Welcome Home. So what... Would you, if you if you could uh, pick one thing or two things, what is it about Mar that you just you had to take the opportunity to come back? Why was it? Why was coming back to Mar such a um, something you just had to to do? So um, I'll kind of um, I'm going to speak on that, but I want to I want to I want to talk about experience I had after I took the job. Okay, yeah, perfect. Because it kind of exemplifies why I did it, but I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if that right. makes any sense, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. here's what I, in the back of my head was like this, okay, this thought, this bubble, that it really didn't have formulate an idea, but I had an experience, and it was the first day I came back to Mar. So uh, I'm the kind of person who, when I jump into a position, I want to jump in, I dive in head first. And so my first day at Mar, I was like, I, I want to go back over to the men's center, sit in on their, what they call a flash meeting, I had been here for probably an hour and a half. I was excited about being here. Um, I was like, I'm going to go over to the men's group and they, uh, men's center and they do this flash. And they're talking about the men over the weekend, not like what they did or didn't do, but really clinical, this guy's struggling with this. This is what's going on. Here's where we're at. And I just sat and listened. I didn't say anything. You know, of course, they were like, welcome. And I was like, I'm glad to be here. And I just listened. And I forgot in that one 45-minute discussion about most of the men in that program, I don't know how many clinicians and therapists were there. I forgot how many people know the patients here and how, how intense they are on wanting to help that person. I've been through other programs. You know, I, I fell in love with Mar 15 years, but I've been to other programs. Nobody does that. Nobody spends, now they'll talk about patients, but it's very quick. They're, they're trying to get through their thing. That's not what happened that morning. I think they spent more time on one gentleman who's probably struggling. They, they weren't going to move from that until they felt they had all shared their clinical expertise and on the same page. The amount of communication that they do in that one meeting, and they do it every day through the week was incredible. And it blew, I had forgotten about that. It blew my mind. That's one of the reasons when, when you talk about the intensive commitment, 
care for each person who's in. Nobody does it like that. Nobody communicates to the level that we communicate. Those patients probably have four to five counselors that know them in different ways. Um, I have forgotten about that. That was probably one of the things I was so glad to be back. Um, and then the other thing is I, I know a lot of the people here and and they're like family. So that welcome home, you know, I mm-hmm. got that text from a from a staff member and and it was so true. It was so true. I, f- I feel like home. I walked in. It was a joy to be here. And I think that's why I came back. I knew it was home. I knew I missed it. I had, I didn't, when I left, I wasn't anti-Mar. I wasn't leaving away from Mar. Um, I wasn't angry with Mar. Sure. I loved Mar. Right. So when someone says, hey, have you thought about going back? I was like, yeah, I have. I've, yeah. I've thought about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that something I can do? Yeah. You know? So Treatment is delicate and people are complicated. And this takes a lot of nuance and care um, and nurturing, you know, that that really I haven't seen, um, I haven't seen anywhere else, you know, the, the level, you know, to that level. I mean, this field is full of great people and, um, but, but to that level of like, like you were just saying, it's, it's just really, really remarkable. Um, yeah. It's very rich. The, the, the clinical environment is rich, mm-hmm. um, here. Um, and I, and I said it earlier and, and I want to reiterate it in, in the sense that I've been to other places. This is a very intimate mm. setting. I mean, we know the patients very, very well. Um, and I think that separates us. I mean, there's just, there's just not a pl- places out there, you know, they're, they're huge, they're whatever. This is a very intimate setting. It's a very close and, and the clinical, um, information, the therapist, you get so much rich um, kind of communication. And, and, and again, they did. They talked about all those intricate details of this patient, not in a, uh, not in a judgmental way, right. not in a, but in a very caring, right. hey, we care. Have we talked about this? We've really got to consider these factors on that individual mm-hmm. treatment plan, not just like everybody else. This guy, this lady... Mm-hmm. is different. And here are her details. These are his details. And we got to treat that person as an individual, and it may look different than this person over here. Not a lot of places do that. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an incredible opportunity to be here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and with, you know, the, the level of care, um, it's like, uh, the, I've, I also saw that in how much they've agonized over, um, you know, when, when I was in admissions and kind of looped into what was going on more clinically than I am now, seeing them agonize about, should we ask this person to leave or should we not? And, you know, what's best for the community? And they really want this stick in here with this guy, but they also have to consider the whole community and how that's going to affect the guys that they're living with. And it's just how much care is taken and, you know, really kind of agonizing. Yeah. On, on those two notes, one is, is to hear the staff as they struggle mm-hmm. through their work, because they put their heart and soul into this. I mean, they really are committed and they put their heart and soul into it. So when they have to say, hey, listen, it's not a good idea. You go home this weekend. Yeah, We care enough about you. They lament over that, meaning they have talked that thoroughly. So it's not like an arbitrary decision. No one's out there 
but it hurts their hearts to know that person may, may not like the decision um, because they care for that person and they don't, they don't want anything to happen to that person. So they do put their heart and soul. So uh, I'm, I'm glad you say that, you know, because a lot of times you'll look at a counselor and they're like, oh, they're just doing that. That's, yeah. that's their job. That's the thing with our staff. It's not because it's their job. They do it because they care. Mm-hmm. They really do. And I think that stands out for 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 us. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, something that you just reminded me of with that is when I, I was kind of surprised talking, uh, surprised but not surprised when I talked to Matt Irwin, because he's, I mean, I look up to him. Maybe, I mean, yeah, I just think he's, he's great. I've learned a lot just from watching him. But, and admire how firm he can be. But when talking with him in here, he told me, that's actually really hard for me to do. And I need to get a lot of support every time I do. And I was like, oh, wow, I thought that was, you know, I thought it was just came really natural. To, and he said, no, that's that's tough. You know, that's tough for me. And it's like, I think it speaks to that thing. He, he really cares and he doesn't want to hurt people's feelings, but he cares about their life enough to do that. Right. I had um. You know, you, we do an incredible job with our podcasts here. You know, mm-hmm. Matt, you do a, an awesome job. Oh, I've had you. an opportunity. To, I haven't listened to all of them, but yeah. I've listened to to several of them. And and my goal is to get through every single one of them. But we, I've heard several, and they're awesome. And they're 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 varied, which I love. They're varied, um, and they give these great insights to who we are and what we're about and what we're committed to. And and I think it's so well done. And I'm glad that we're a part of this and that we're doing this. It's it's awesome. Not a lot of places are doing this, and if if any, mm-hmm. I love that. But I love being a part of that recovery journey. But if I can put a special plug that that story that Matt did, yeah, I mean it is it is it is a well done story. He is able to articulate the the true meaning of Mar. He makes it funny. He makes you cry and sad at the same time, but he makes you happy. Um, he does an incredible job. I had an opportunity to, to, to tell him that that he, he you know he said some positive things and they're very complimentary, but I don't think they were true. I think I learned more from him than he would have ever learned from me. He taught me more about the journey he was on, the journey that the people who come through here are on than anybody out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just is an awesome teacher, um, very talented um, guy. Um, but to that, you know, it it was, it is hard for not just him, it's hard for all of our people to set that because again, yeah. it comes from that place of caring. And, you know, we ask our patients every day to take courage and do something different, have willingness, surrender. And these these are hard things for them to do. You know, no one wants to come here and give up everything. Who would? I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. You know, no one would. We ask the same things of our staff. We we ask our staff to stretch their comfort zones. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, you know, for life kind of thing is because we're with them. You know, we're asking them to do things, and we're willing to do those same things. Um, I have to learn a whole lot. You know, our staff learn a whole lot, and we learn from each other. Um I continue to learn from all of our staff. They teach me every day. Our patients teach us every day. We hope that we're teaching them every day. You know, we really think this is a family learning on, Mm -hmm. you know, from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think it, it, that kind of goes back to something I've 
we've touched on before in the podcast, but I think it's worth repeating that it's like recovery or this, you know, recovery from substance abuse is kind of, um, that's the thing that brings people here. But then the, the thing that binds people together here and, and kind of creates a community here at Mar and keeps people involved, whether they're, they have a history of substance abuse or their family member or whether they're a volunteer, whatever their role is something bigger than that. It's like substance abuse is kind of what starts the relationship, but then we all kind of get invested in this community thing that, that is really powerful. And, um, you know, obviously that's, that's a huge part of the attraction to Mar. What's your goal in terms of leading us forward and, and where you kind of want to see Mar go or incorporate, you know, adding to that community that we've sustained for, I guess, close to 45 years now. Coming up. Yeah. It'll yeah. Coming up on 40. So yeah. What, what's your vision for, for where you want to take Mar? So I have, uh, you know, there's several things that we have as far as that we would like to do with Mar, uh, but I'm going to try to highlight, you know, maybe three things Perfect. that we want to, we want to do. And again, there may be some more things outside of that. First and foremost, we, we do want to have Mar continue to be successful, meaning we've got to navigate that challenging landscape. And that make that means making sure that we're providing um, the best clinical care without losing our heart. You know, the heart is the first thing that we've got to keep. So, you know, that's the challenge. That's the first goal is how do we continue to move forward? Because again, we stated earlier that the mental health, the substance abuse addiction field is ever evolving. So the, the disease changes, you know, like just the flu or anything disease, it warps, it manifests itself, it changes. We've got to be able to be flexible and nimble and change with that without losing our heart. Mm -hmm. And we can, mm -hmm. and we will. So that's the first thing, we've got to navigate that. The second thing is, I think it goes um, back to um, that for life, that alumni. Part of what keeps um, us connected is that alumni association. I would love to see one of our um, goals is to continue to grow that. We have an incredible alumni association. We have some good coordinators. We have people who are deeply committed. How do we continue to grow that? How do we continue to keep people here? I heard a um, wonderful story in the, um, um, on the podcast, Sharon. Wow. Mm. Um, oh, yeah. 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 Um, alumni of the year. I'm not sure which year, but, um, you know, how do, we, how do we get more people like Sharon? That's... That's our second vision is how do we do that? How do we grow that? Again, we can't lose that heart. And it's not about, there's no, there's no financial stuff that comes with the Alumni Association. But we want that connection because we know we do good work and we want that um, patient, that family to be with us for life because um, we want to educate the world about recovery that there is a solution, there's a hope, there's something here. And if we can grow that, we instill hope in more people. That's why. The, the why is we want more people to know there's a place, even if it's not with us, but there's a hope for you and your loved one, your family member. So we want to grow that. Um, and the, the third thing is probably we just want to continue to be um, solvent. Um, with the changing landscape, we've got to do everything we can to be solvent as an organization. You know, again, you talked about coming up on 45 years. How do we keep that going? How do we navigate that first part, the landscape? 
How do we grow that alumni association? How do we continue to be solvent as an organization? How do we take um, that heart, continue to know that's what we got to do, but remain intact fully? Um, And not just with solvent, there's kind of like a little sidebar with solvent. What are the other opportunities? I think Mar has several opportunities that have been untapped. Untapped opportunities of ways that we can help families, ways that we can help our patients and loved ones and the people who seek our care. And I think there's opportunities that we haven't tapped into. The, the, the need is there. You know, we talked about the millions of Americans who need mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if you talk about 45 million Americans need mental health treatment in some form or fashion. So they have how many loved ones connected to them? Was it like one in four, one in five are impacted mm-hmm. by addiction? It's probably even higher for uh, impacted with mental health. Sure. How do we provide those opportunities for those, for those people to get help? There's opportunities there. And uh, I think MAR is, is poised to help with that population. And on that note, um, this might be a little bit of a shameless plug. But we've got a new workbook out. Um, we do, and and you actually wrote material that ended up being part of that. You you worked with Todd, and and um, the, we've been doing this one day seminar uh, ten years, which evolved out of the Family Week, which has been going on even longer. So, you know, why do you? What do you think? And, and you've looked at the book, you, you've reviewed it. What do you think is, um, you helped write it. What, do you th- what material in there do you think might be helpful for people that are finding themselves, maybe listening to this, finding themselves kind of really overwhelmed and not sure even what's going on, you know, in their, in their home? Um, there's two things in that book that I think are particularly um, um, advantageous for families to read. Um, um, but again, you know, I was blessed to be a part of that. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't start the um, the one-day seminar. I was here when it started. I think Janet started that one-day seminar off of our three-day. Um, I was doing that as director of admissions a little bit before that, too, as, as a primary counselor. Um, I love that. I would, I would talk to families all the time, um, and I would have an opportunity on the phone to get their loved ones in. Hey, by the way. I hope I get to see you at the family program because I do a little presentation, which I think you're going to like. Um, and Todd and I did a wonderful job, and it's, cl- it's I'm so glad that Todd continues to do that. Um, and what a wonderful book and an opportunity for us to reach out and help more families. I don't think it's shameless at all because the reason we did that was to help families. Right. We didn't do this for any other reason other than to say, hey, we think we've got something that's going to help you navigate. Here's what it is. And I think it's a wonderful piece that we did, and mm-hmm. I'm so excited um, that we put that together. Yeah. But the two things that I would recommend is one, um, and we did this, you know, again, and I'm going to do a shameless plug <laughs> myself, but it's okay. not shameless. Again, this is yeah. because we want to help. Um, we have just started this this live webinar thing. Yeah. And what happened in that webinar is something that they do in the book, and that is they talk about the disease of addiction. There are so many people out there still today that do not recognize this as a disease, and they're like, they can just stop. No, they can't. It's like stopping cancer. It's like stopping diabetes. A person can't wish their diabetes away. You can't sit there and wish your cancer away. You can't, you know. There's a treatment option for for addiction. It's a disease. So we've got to make sure, if there's anything I would relay to families, is this is a disease. Your loved one is not trying to hurt you. It's not intentional. No one gets five DUIs, ends up in jail, broke, 
on purpose out of a choice. No one. No one does that. No one chooses that lifestyle. So if we can get that in the book. And then the second piece is that um, that boundary piece that it's all kind of commingled together, the boundary, the enabling, the um, um, rescuing part. It's about being okay to let natural consequences have an impact on your loved one. Because natural consequences can get that person to seek treatment. So that's the solution. It's like cancer. You can't wish it away, but you can do treatment. You can do chemotherapy. You can do radiation. Mm -hmm. You may have to do surgery. There's treatment options out there. The consequences, if you don't do cancer, we know what they are. Um, There's some natural ones to that, natural ones to, to, to diabetes or to heart disease. There are natural consequences for the disease of addiction. And if, if families can somehow get out of the way, some of those natural consequences can lead that person to treatment where the solution is. That's the help treatment. Mm-hmm. So I think if, if those two things in that book, if, if those two things can help you on your struggle, because I think that's where a lot of families struggle. They should be able to stop. Why can't they? Or how do I get them to where I'd like them to be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's it. And it's just so, I feel for the family members that are in that situation because it's so counterintuitive to think letting them feel some pain is actually the more loving thing to do. It doesn't make sense logically at that, at that time. Looking back, they can always, you know, like the, the people, um, Patty and Andrew, who we had on the last podcast, spoke about that so beautifully that if you can just tolerate your own feelings in the moment and not get pulled into the crisis, they usually figure it out. And then it's empowering for them. And then, you know, and then, or or they feel consequences and they they feel that squeeze and start thinking more seriously about recovery. Agree. And and they did a wonderful job. I listened to theirs as well. And, and, you know, again, they were um, they were fun. They were fun to listen to. Yeah. They had a great um, attitude, and and absolutely, that's what they kind of mentioned is is letting their their sons go through that. And I think that the piece that got at me f- with them, I was listening to them, is that moment where they were ta- kind of talking about again. I don't know the exact words, but they were talking about they got okay, even if their sons weren't. Mm. I love that piece. They they were able to articulate that they got okay. They didn't know if their sons were going to be okay or not. They had faith that they were, but they were like, you know what? We got okay despite nonetheless. I think their sons are doing good, but yeah. but they were okay nonetheless. And I, I, I thought that was a really um, touching point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then back on the earlier thing, you know, when you had, I think it was Brian Moore yeah. that you had in mm-hmm. here. Yeah. And he talked about that a little bit, that disease of addiction and, you know, we're waiting for that population, you know, the fear is we're waiting for that population to get down to what he calls that 3%, where they're under the bridge, drinking every day. Mm-hmm. And some of those nat- natural consequences can get them well before that 3%. Why would you let that person get to that point? Meaning there's not a lot you can do, but you can stop doing something that may, and it is counterintuitive. Yeah. Like it's abnormal. You know, Brian said it well, they just want to help. Mm-hmm. You don't help in a normal way like you would do other diseases. Right. That's the difficult part. Like if I have a cancer um, patient, I'm going to help him in one way. We can't treat that the same way addiction. It's counterintuitive. But if you reach out, you know, that's one of the things I love. Again, we talked about admissions. We can help you do that. What is the first step in doing that? Well, you may not know, but our admissions team does. Mm-hmm. 
They'll walk you through what's that first step. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Um, so I, I agree. It's a it's a difficult journey for families to go through. And since since you've listened to podcasts, you know how I uh, usually wrap these up. So what what is and you, so you might have had a chance to think about it already. I have. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't mean I have a good answer. Right. <laughs> so um, so what is one thing you would pass on to somebody who's listening, if you could? Um, you know, again, in the in the last three weeks, um, not just listen to the podcasts. Again, the last three weeks, I've had an opportunity to sit with so many different staff members at the women's facility, at the at the men's facility, at Right Side Up, which we, ha- we you know we do a wonderful um, job at Right Side Up. I don't think they get enough um, opportunities to kind of share the wonderful work that they do. And um, they've been doing it for a long time with us. I think since two thousand and one. Um, Marsha is the director of there. Um, an incredible job of what they do. So we have so many different programs that we run, and I've had so many opportunities. Um, I want to touch on something I've already said, and that is we care. You know, the more I talk to people, the more I'm convinced that not only um, do all of our staff care and are committed, I think that's the single point that that humans connect with. You know, as they struggle through life, they just want to know if I'm having a, a tough emotional time, I want to talk with someone who, who I know cares about me and will listen to me. And I think that's where we're at. And I think Mar does an incredible job, um, better than most anybody else is letting people know that we care. I think that's what I would, I would hope. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Bill. This has been really a pleasure. An and, honor. And, An yeah. honor, Matt. Well, thank you. Yeah, and it's good just to sit down and chat and get to know you a little better. So, so thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our co-producer is Angela Edmonds and our executive producer is David Tate. If you want your own copy of the workbook that we were just talking about, all you have to do is visit marinc.org slash workbook. That's M-A-R-R-I-N-C dot O-R-G slash workbook. And you can purchase a copy there. And for podcast listeners, we have a special offer. You can get half off when you enter the promo code FAMILY at checkout. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.